Welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm your host, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's Washington National Tax, or WNT, international tax practice. On December 27, 2022, Treasury and the IRS released Notice 2023-7, the government's first tranche of guidance on the Corporate Alternative Minimum Tax, or what we like to call the CAMP-T. The notice previews regulations that will cover several issues, but its primary focus is on the interaction of M&A and CAMP-T. Fortunately, the notice answers a lot of questions. Unfortunately, it creates more questions than it answers. For this discussion, I'm delighted to be joined by Amy Chapman, a principal in WNT Corporate, and Tim Nichols, a senior manager in the same group. Amy and Tim, welcome. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Gary. On August 16th of last year, Congress passed and President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act. The IRA included CAMP-T, a global minimum tax that is decidedly not the same global minimum tax that the Biden administration agreed, along with 140 plus other countries to implement. These are known as the GLOBE rules. While CAMP-T and GLOBE share the same rate, 15%, and their bases both start with financial statement accounting income, that's pretty much where the similarities end. Maybe the most significant difference between the two regimes among many is that CAMP-T is determined on a global basis, whereas GLOBE is determined jurisdiction by jurisdiction. The CAMP-T was enacted, according to the politicians, to compel large multinational companies that report, quote, gigantic profits to their shareholders, but pay little or no income tax to pay more tax. A more cynical observer might say that its actual purpose was merely to raise a sufficient amount of revenue to appease certain recalcitrant Democratic senators. Through whatever lens you view this debate, the effect of CAMT is clear, well, sorta. Starting in 2023, in-scope corporations must calculate their tax twice. First, their regular tax, for this purpose including BEAT, and second, their so-called tentative minimum tax, and must then pay CAMT to the extent that the second number exceeds the first. In general, a corporation's tentative minimum tax is 15% of its adjusted financial statement income, or AFSI. AFSI, in turn, is generally a corporation's net income or loss set forth on its applicable financial statement with certain adjustments, such as replacing book depreciation with tax depreciation and requiring a U.S. shareholder to include its pro rata share of the financial statement income of a CFC. But I've already started talking about liability before getting into scope. That's like putting the cart before the horse. A corporation is subject to the CAMP-T only if it's an applicable corporation. And a corporation is an applicable corporation for any tax year starting on or after January 1st, 2023, only if for any three-year period preceding the year in question starting in 2020, 
its average AFSI is at least $1 billion. This is called the income test. So in general, a calendar year corporation would be an applicable corporation for its 2023 tax year if it satisfied the income test for 2020 through 2022. For purposes of the income test, aggregation rules apply to treat AFSI of entities in the same Section 52 controlled group as a corporation as the AFSI of that corporation. There are also special scoping rules for foreign parented groups under which a foreign parented corporation is an applicable corporation only if the group has $1 billion of global AFSI and $100 million of US related AFSI. In general, once a corporation is an applicable corporation, it's always an applicable corporation. It should be noted that while both the liability determination and the scope determination are made by reference to AFSI, AFSI can be different for each. For instance, the aggregation rules only apply for scope determination and not for liability. On the other hand, whereas financial statement NOLs, i.e. AFSI losses, can be carried forward indefinitely to reduce an applicable corporation's AFSI for purposes of determining its liability. Such NOLs aren't taken into account for scope. There are numerous grants of authority provided to Treasury and the IRS in the CAMPTI statute. In the context of M&A, there are some particularly significant grants that I want to highlight. First, the government is authorized to provide rules for permitting an applicable corporation to cease to be an applicable corporation by reason of a change of ownership. Second, the government is authorized to issue regulations or other guidance providing adjustments necessary to prevent the omission or duplication of any item and to carry out the principles of subchapter C related to corporate transactions and subchapter K relating to partnership transactions. The notice represents the government's first attempt at exercising this authority. In this episode, we're going to focus on what the notice has to say about M&A. One might wonder why in a podcast devoted to U.S. international tax, we would explore CAMPTI M&A issues here. The answer is simple. CAMPTI is a tax not only on the profits of domestic corporations, but it's also potentially a tax on effectively connected income or ECI reflected in the books of in-scope foreign corporations, as well as the book profits of CFCs of domestic corporations. So the M&A rules in the notice can apply equally, for instance, to transactions involving CFCs as they can to transactions involving domestic corporations. Amy, let me start with you. At a, at a very high level, what does the notice have to say about M&A? Yeah, thanks, Gary. So the notice addresses two issues in the treatment of M&A transactions. First, it speaks to the determination of Apple Corporation status when an entity is transferred from one group into another. Second, it also addresses the treatment of non-recognition transactions that are non-recognition for tax purposes. So the rules with respect to status are relevant only with respect to scope determination, and the non-recognition rules are relevant for both scope and liability. Let's talk first about the scope rules. Before the notice, there was some concern that an acquisition of an applicable corporation where this corporation, the target, is an applicable corporation solely by reason of the aggregation rules 
could taint the acquiring corporation. Could you explain this concern and how does the notice address this? Yeah, so the statute indicates that an entity can lose its Apple Corporation status if the corporation has a changed ownership or has its AFSI drop below a certain threshold for a specified period of time, and the secretary determines it would be appropriate to cease Apple Corporation status. So under the statute, there is no mechanism for an Apple Corporation to cease to be an Apple Corporation without some sort of determination by the secretary. So until we got some sort of guidance out there, there was no way to lose Apple Corporation status. And then practitioners were concerned that because you can't lose your Apple Corporation status, perhaps entities have some sort of taint. So if you're acquiring either, for example, a small target out of a larger group that is in the threshold because of aggregation rules, or potentially you could be acquiring a group that had met the thresholds in previous years, but has shrunk down and is now small and wouldn't trigger it otherwise. But nevertheless, because you couldn't lose your Apple Corporation status, maybe that remaining status could taint the new acquiring group when that entity is acquired into a group. So the notice addresses this issue. And generally what it says is, when you acquire a target corporation or a target group, the Apple Corporation status with respect to that target or group terminates upon the acquisition. However, the notice further provides that that allocable AFSI history of the target then carries over and is combined with the AFSI history of the acquired group. And then you can test the combined group together to see whether they beat the thresholds. Okay, so applicable corporation status of the target terminates upon the acquisition. That that eliminates one concern, but but could you un- unpack how acquiring is supposed to take into account Target's AFSI history? Let's start with the fact pattern where acquiring acquires an entire Target group. Okay, so let's assume that you have a Target group engine acquiring group and that they each had AFSI of $600 million for each year in 2022, 2023, and 2024. And then in 2024, the acquiring group acquires the target group. So what the notice says is in this fact pattern, you combine the AFSI of the two groups and you look at that combined AFSI of the two groups when computing whether this new combined group is going to qualify. So in this example, each of target and acquiring had AFSI of 600 million in each of the years. And so we would say when we combine them that that the combined group had AFSI of 1.2 billion in each year of 2022, 2023, 2024. And therefore, as a result, that combined entity now satisfies the thresholds to be an Apple corporation in this example. It sounds fairly straightforward. But once you try to start applying this rule, we we have run into issues as to how to read the notice. For example, the notice indicates that you're importing this history from prior years. So if you read that literally, there is a question as to whether that could cause a retroactive change in the status of the applicable corporation. Because in 2022, 2023, acquiring, it didn't own Target, didn't meet the threshold, But nevertheless, now we're importing that target history in those years. And if they had sufficient AFSI in 2021, for example, could they retroactively have become an Apple corporation in the earlier year? 
And then potentially it could go the other way as well. If you're importing loss history, could that cause them to cease to be an Apple corporation in a prior year? The IRS has addressed this question on panels. And what they've said is that th that kind of retroactive change in status is not what was intended, which is reasonable. I mean, it does seem a bit odd to go back and change someone's status based on a target that it did not own at the time. So that's good to hear. However, it's not really totally clear from the language of the notice itself. And then putting that aside, they were not going to look retroactively. There's still a further question. Does that acquiring group become an Apple corporation in 2024, which is the year that it acquired the target, or in 2025? So the statutory scheme seems generally to want taxpayers to be able to determine at the outset of the year whether or not they're Apple corporations. However, there doesn't seem to be anything in the notice that would prevent that group from becoming an Apple corporation in 2024, the year of the acquisition, if, for example, there was sufficient AFSI in 2021. But these are all sort of the open questions still when we're trying to sort of work through this notice. What about an example where acquiring buys target out of a target group? That is, it doesn't acquire the whole group. How does acquiring take into account targets AFSI history in that case? So the notice requires that you do a reasonable allocation of the AFSI history of the target group to that particular target entity. And then that allocable history is combined with the AFSI history of the acquiring group, similar to in the prior case. So the notice right now says that taxpayers can use any reasonable method in doing this allocation, but it does indicate that in future guidance, it, they do anticipate that there will be a specific method that is set forth. So interestingly, the notice provides that you allocate that portion to the acquiring group, but it does not reduce the target group's AFSI. So effectively, targets AFSI can be taken into account by both target and acquiring's group. Isn't that double counting? Yes, a lot of people do think of it that way, and there is a strong argument that it is double counting. There are some cases, for example, if the acquisition was an exchange for acquiring stock, you might be able to argue that the acquiring group is getting larger in effect because it's now acquired Target and it just gave up its own stock. And the Target group is not really shrinking because it's now received acquiring stock in exchange for its Target stock. But generally, this does look like double counting, and that is how the tax community is perceiving it. The government has indicated that the reason that they enacted this what we might see as a double counting rule is that they're in trying to reduce game playing distortions. They don't want to have people incentivized to engage in M&A transactions, trying to extract and move AFSI around. So I think that's what they were trying to get at with these rules. Another sort of interesting point is if, if the ta target is sold in the taxable transaction, then presumably gain from the sale, which you could view as reflective of that target's future income, presumably will be picked up in the target group's AFSI as well. One point on this, there's some language in the notice on this point. So what the notice says is that AFSI of the target AFS group for each year of the three-year taxable period is not reduced by the allocation of the AFSI to target or otherwise affected by the acquirer group's acquisition of the target through the covered transaction. So that or otherwise affected language, we've sort of debated what is meant by that. And is that intended to say that you do not pick up any gain on the transaction? I think most people feel that that's probably not what the notice meant, but that language is unclear. 
So these these scope rules clearly apply to acquisitions of target stock and 355 distributions. Also, as evidenced by an example in the notice, they also apply to asset transfers that occur pursuant to a reorganization or Section 3D1 transactions. That is a target that's acquired in an A, C, or D reorg is acquired for purposes of these rules, and thus acquiring would have to take into account targets AFSI. But what if target just sells some or all of its assets in a taxable transaction? In those cases, do we still think acquiring inherits any of target's AFSIA history? Here again, the notice is not tremendously clear. The way the rule is worded is it refers to an acquire AFS group acquiring a target, and the term target is defined as a corporation in a covered transaction that creates a test group comprised of the target or the assets thereof. So they refer to the test group being comprised of the targets or the assets of the target. So it does seem to, at least in some ways, anticipate target asset acquisitions. However, it seems unlikely that they had in mind, say, I purchased a single truck out of Target, am I now in these rules? It seems like they probably had in mind stock acquisitions and 381 transactions. However, under the wording, it's not entirely clear right now. Thanks, Amy. Let's change topics a bit here. Tim, Amy had said that the notice also addressed the treatment of non-recognition transactions for purposes of CAMTI. What did the notice say on this topic? Yeah, thanks, Gary. I think the notice really builds off of the statutory instruction in Section 56A for rules to be promulgated that carry out the principles of certain parts of subchapter C and subchapter K of the code. And those parts feature various rules, including various non-recognition rules that defer tax recognition in various formation or reorganization transactions. And so I think the notice is really building off of this congressional instruction in the statute. And the notice defines a covered non-recognition transaction as a transaction that solely with regard to a corporation or partnership qualifies for non-recognition under certain identified provisions in the notice and does not result in any amount of gain or loss to the corporation or partnership. The notice also provides that each quote-unquote component transaction of a larger transaction is examined separately for qualification as a covered non-recognition transaction. So this component transaction concept is one that I've really struggled to understand. Can you elaborate on what the notice is trying to say here? So I think the intent is to preserve non-recognition treatment on one leg of a transaction, even if another leg of the transaction involves some gain or loss recognition. However, I do think it's hard to understand where the notice is trying to draw the line in terms of what constitutes a component. You know, on one hand, in example four of the section of the notice um, that addresses these non-recognition transactions, example four addresses a D355 split-off transaction. And the facts state that there's no gain or loss recognized on the exchange between the distributing and controlled corporations, but that gain is recognized by the distributing corporation on the subsequent debt exchange it engages in with uh, outside creditors. And so 
the notice provides that the contribution of property to C and the distribution of debt by the distributing corporation where the gain is recognized are treated as separate transactions and therefore it provides that non-recognition or treatment applies to the contribution to controlled portion of that transaction. You know, you can contrast this example with example five in the notice where you have a partnership contribution and you have contribution of property to a partnership and then subsequently there is a distribution of property from the partnership that results in the treatment of the integrated transaction in part as a disguised sale. And in this case, the notice treats that as one component transaction, both the contribution and the distribution that's treated in part as a sale, that's treated as one component transaction, even though for tax purposes, it would seem that these pieces of the transaction could also be bifurcated into separate components. So I think overall, it's just not particularly clear how the service is defining a component and I'll also note that it's somewhat unclear as to how the notice views how the results of one component transaction should impact another. You know, to go back to example four, the notice provides that gain recognized on the debt for debt exchange for book purposes, and that's the part that's the recognition portion of that transaction, overall transaction. That can result in a change in the book asset basis of the assets received by controlled, the portion of the transaction where no gain or loss is recognized. And it's not really clear how the operational rules in the notice apply to get to this result. And so I think, you know, the bottom line here is that the the examples in the notice seem to raise a lot of questions as to how exactly they're intended to work in, in even some fairly basic cases. So the the partnership example is particularly interesting to me. It it concludes that because in the relevant component transaction, some amount of gain or loss is recognized, the covered non-recognition rules simply do not apply, meaning that the notice seems to take the approach that if any gain or loss is recognized, you don't apply the non-recognition rules at all and you just follow book treatment. I would Note that this is inconsistent with the analogous GLOBE rules, which we've discussed at some length on this podcast, which permit partial gain in a reorg. Does the government explain in the notice why they took this all or nothing approach? No, the notice doesn't explain why it took this approach, although it does request comments on whether or not non-recognition treatment should be extended to partial recognition transactions. It could be that the sort of all or nothing approach was a function of trying to get the guidance out very quickly. There have been some subsequent statements from government officials that have sounded like it may have been more of that, more of an attempt to get guidance out quickly than an attempt to draw a bright line rule in this, this area. You know, you could look at the notice approach, this all or nothing approach is providing a degree of electivity, particularly depending on how a component transaction is defined. I'll just note that there are areas in the code where form really matters. For example, you can have a dollar of boot that can prevent a transaction from qualifying as a B reorganization. But, you know, overall, it seems like 
Treasury may not want to have the consequences of these transactions similarly turn on $1 of gain recognition by applying such a formalistic approach. In many cases, companies might appreciate non-recognition for Campti if the book income reflected on financial statements by reason of, for example, a non-Paretta spin were taken into account for Campti, this book income could push a corporation that was not otherwise in scope into scope, or if the company were already in scope, could generate a huge chunk of AFSI with no or minimal regular tax liability accompanying it. This is a recipe for a CAMPTI liability since CAMPTI, as we've discussed, is the delta between 15% of AFSI and regular tax. But are there reasons why taxpayers might not want the non-recognition afforded by the notice? So the short answer is yes. It may be the case that a transferor or target is not an applicable corporation. And so therefore, the fact that the non-recognition rules might apply to exclude gain on the target or transferor side just isn't relevant. It may also be the case that the target or transferor does not have any gain on its financial statements to exclude. For example, a merger of a target corporation that's publicly traded into an acquiring corporation, the financial statements of the target may not reflect any gain or loss on that transaction. And so that would leave the acquirer perhaps with the advantage, if the non-recognition rules do not apply, of getting the advantage of purchase accounting and a step up in the carrying value of the target's assets. And I think in addition to this potential benefit from a CAMT liability perspective, you know, the non-recognition rules add a significant amount of administrative complexity. Effectively, you're requiring taxpayers under these rules to create a separate set of books solely for purposes of the CAMT. And so taxpayers may, just from an administrative perspective, prefer not to have to deal with this separate set of books that would otherwise be required. And, you know, I think here, just kind of stepping back, one point that's worth noting, sort of in terms of administrative complexity, is that the notice non-recognition rule is not limited to particular times or taxpayers, at least explicitly. And so that could make its application potentially very broad. Just for one example, if corporation underwent a non-recognition transaction in 2010, are they required to take that into account and take into account these separate CAMT books when they become an applicable corporation in 2023? And another example, I think, is it's not just that the notice may require you to look backwards, but many corporations currently are not going to be applicable corporations because they're not large enough but they could become applicable corporations at some point in the future. And so you could have a corporation that has several different types of transactions, some non-recognition, and all of a sudden in 2030, it's now large enough to become an applicable corporation. Is that taxpayer supposed to go back and make adjustments for this non-recognition rule throughout its history, even after the CAMT became effective? And so I think it, you know, overall, it, it does seem impractical and at least somewhat inappropriate to force all corporations that undergo non-recognition transactions to create this separate set of CAMT books, 
even if at the time of the transaction they're well below the AFSI threshold for applicable corporation status. Let's move on and talk about what the notice does not address. Other than the scope rules we discussed with Amy at the outset of this episode, the notice provides no guidance on the treatment of transactions that are taxable from a regular tax perspective. What type of guidance is needed here, Tim? I think a major question is to what extent financial statement, general financial statement treatment is not going to be controlling as it's not controlling in the context of non-recognition transactions. And I think a big part of that is to what extent purchase accounting or push-down accounting should be taken into account in transactions that are taxable for regular tax purposes. And just to maybe back up a little bit, from a consolidated financial statement perspective, the acquisition of 100% of a corporation generally is treated as an acquisition of assets. And the carrying value of the assets in a target that's acquired is reported at fair market value in the acquirer's consolidated financial statements following the acquisition. And you generally have a similar treatment on the seller side. If the target corporation is consolidated for financial statement purposes with the seller, the consolidated financial statements of the seller are generally going to disregard the equity ownership in that target and treat the transaction as an asset sale. And again, and we kind of touched on this in the um, the prior question, but for book purposes, application of purchase accounting in consolidated financial statements does not necessarily mean that book income was recognized on the other side of the transaction. Further, the consolidated financial statements don't really have an analog to the concept of a taxable stock acquisition. The regular tax system distinguishes between stock and asset acquisitions, and stock acquisitions for regular tax purposes don't result in a change in inside asset basis unless there's a Section 338 or 336 election. And so you have sort of all of these various pieces to try to put together. And just looking at the statute, it appears to provide for purchase accounting, or at least there's no adjustment to remove it. And it also seems like the notice views purchase accounting is applicable, given that it specifically turns off the changes to the carrying value for the acquirer where a non-recognition transaction applies. And so I think a major question is, what is sort of the objective of the CAMP-T And how does that apply to the treatment of these taxable transactions for regular tax purposes? Should it be to try to align the treatment on the seller side and the buyer side so that purchase accounting applies only when there's income recognized for AFC purposes to the seller? Or is it really that the policy of the CAMT is that it is a separate set of rules and it's applying a separate tax base or applying to a separate tax base? And therefore, it's more appropriate just to look at what the financial statements provide. And if that's purchase accounting, that's what should be followed for purposes of applying the CAMT. Okay, so let's close with an easy topic. Amy, we in the tax world are coming to understand that for financial statement purposes, gains and losses may be recognized for book purposes with respect to equity interests that aren't even transferred. For example, if 
he owns a hundred percent of T and sells fifty-one percent to another party, the sale could deconsolidate T from P's financial statement, meaning that P's consolidated financial statements could pick up not only asset level gain on the 51% interest sold, but also on the remaining 49%, the retained interest. And that P is treated as buying its retained 49% interest for its current fair market value. This is sort of akin to mark to market for the 49% interest retained by P&T. How do we think about these tax non-realization events in the context of Campty? Yeah, so right now, neither the statute nor the notice imposes any kind of override to book here. So I think until further notice, it seems like whatever the book results are is the result. However, the notice does request comments on this point, and I expect we may see guidance on this point going forward. I will note that Section 56A C2C may mitigate this situation in many cases. So that provision indicates for non-consolidated subsidiaries, you only take into account in AFSI dividends and certain other items that are generally derived from the tax rules. So therefore, some of these sorts of um, unrealized gains and losses will be excluded under that rule, but that will not always be the case. So for example, in the example that you gave here, T may have been consolidated with P prior to that disposition, in which case you may not be in C2C. So it is an issue that the government is going to have to grapple with how they want to provide guidance. And I think on that note, I want to step back for a minute because this and the other situations we've been talking through get at the crux of the big picture issue with this regime. But when Campsy was proposed and pitched within Congress and to the public, the narrative was we have these large corporations that are reporting wild profits to their shareholders, while at the same time they're not paying any tax implicitly because they're taking advantage of excessive tax loopholes. But in reality, it's much more complicated than that. Book and tax are just fundamentally different regimes. And many of the differences in financial statement income versus taxable income have nothing to do with tax loopholes. Furthermore, these tax loopholes, which you can't see me, but I'm making air quotes, were enacted by Congress quite purposefully and were guided by a long history of tax policy with complex aims. So now we have a situation where Congress is applying this new tax that's based on financial statement income. However, at the same time, it's clear that Congress did not want to override tax policy entirely. We can see that in the callouts in the statute to import concepts from subject C, subject K, depreciation. Treasury and IRS are now in a position where they need to draw lines on when to preserve tax policy and when to let the chips fall where they may in just applying book concepts. So for example, it's antithetical to the tax system for a corporation to receive a step up in basis without recognizing gain. Yet the book regime doesn't have such constraints. So do we impose tax concepts or do we follow book? The question that you just asked me here is another situation where book and tax are fundamentally incompatible. We generally do not tax unrealized gains, but in this situation, the book regime is creating a gain. So which do you follow? The notice does give us some hints as to where the government may draw some of these lines. So one thing is that Treasury does not seem to be shying away from requiring taxpayers to keep a parallel set of books with adjusted carrying values, et cetera. We see that in the non-recognition rules. They are making adjustments to what would otherwise appear on financial statements. On the other hand, 
subchapter C was specifically called out in the statute, so it may be the Treasury felt compelled to write those rules in that context and perhaps shouldn't be taken as an indication that that's going to be their approach overall. And then another point, I do think ultimately administrability is going to be a significant concern, but so far in the notice, they don't seem overly concerned on that point either, as a lot of these rules are fairly complex. So I think the big picture takeaway from all of this is that we're going to need significantly more guidance from the government to be able to apply these rules in a coherent way. And so as that guidance is coming out, we'll start to see where some of these lines are being drawn between tax policy versus following book concepts. Thanks, Amy. That's a good synopsis of many of the tensions in the system between Campty and regular tax and and a lot of the difficulties that the government will have to grapple with and also that taxpayers will have to grapple with, particularly until we get more guidance. Notice 2023-7 certainly represents only the first tranche of guidance. Indeed, since the notice came out, we've received another notice related to the treatment of insurance companies under the Campty but we still haven't received any guidance from Treasury and the IRS addressing specific international concerns with CAMPTI, such as the treatment of CFC dividends and the credibility of foreign taxes paid by partnerships. I expect that we'll cover these topics in an episode of the podcast in the very near future, whether or not we've received an international specific notice in the interim. In any case, I wanted to thank Amy and Tim for joining me on this episode today. And as always, please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax to stay up to speed on the latest developments in U.S. international tax. Until our next episode, take care. (laughs) 